All right, we should get started now. I'd like to welcome everyone to our workshop on globalization institutions and economic security. As usual, we're very grateful to the Mershon Center for underwriting our workshop and to Ann Powers and Kathy Becker in particular for the organization. Um, today I'm very pleased to welcome Nita Rudra from the University of Pittsburgh. Nita is a PhD from the University of Southern California. She has very well published in international political economy in journals such as International Organization, American Journal of Political Science, JOP, and many others. And importantly, she is the author of the forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press called Who Really Gets Hurt? Globalization and the Race to the Bottom. Um, her presentation will be followed by a discussion by Kadir Yildirim. And um, should we save questions until the end except for clarification? Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm super excited to have this opportunity to present my work here with you guys today and get your feedback because this is very much a work in progress with my co-author, your colleague, Irfan. Um, my broader research interest, most of my research focuses on the prospects of embedded liberalism in developing countries. This is a term that you probably are well are familiar with coined by John Ruggie, and it refers to the imperative of balancing international market expansion with social stability in developing countries. So this research project with IRFAN is very much linked to this broader research agenda. The title of this project is called Have Governments Gone Too Far? It's inspired by Danny Roderick's 1997 book entitled Has Globalization Gone Too Far? So Roderick discusses the dangers of globalization. And he argues that global indeed, globalization has indeed gone too far when governments have to cut back welfare expenditures because of international market prospects. And the logic is of the economic benefits that welfare retrenchment is, is purportedly brings. Well, in this paper, Irfan and I try to understand the political dynamics behind this relationship of globalization and these, these cutbacks in welfare spending in developing countries. And we ask whether, in the end, governments have gone too far in cutting back welfare expenditures in, the, in this era of globalization. And our answer is, in good academic style, yes and no. <clears throat> so, so, so uh, Roderick's work has inspired, um, since 1997, a lot of research, empirical research, that looks at this relationship between globalization and welfare spending in developing countries. And essentially, most of these, uh, there's, there's pretty consistent findings that because of the negative macroeconomic effects that welfare spending can have on labor costs, uh, export competitiveness, and, and the, its ability attra to attract capital flows, most of these works have found a pretty consistent negative relationship in between globalization, particularly trade openness and government welfare spending. Well, the problem is with these findings is that we really still do not know why governments of developing countries would actually comply with such reforms when these welfare constituents represent pretty powerful interest groups for many of these governments. So in essence, the domestic politics supporting this government reduction in welfare spending is treated rather abstractly in these existing works 
that are that this existing scholarship that's burgeoning on the relationship between globalization and welfare spending. What are the micro foundations behind this argument? Why are governments cutting back welfare spending? Who are the groups that are lobbying for governments to do that? The individual actors and their motivations have yet to be identified and specified. But what we do have in the existing literature is an implicit assumption. What many of us argue when we look at this relationship is what's happening is the owners of mobile capital and export producers have acquired political dominance and that they're actually lobbying the government for a reduction in these types of welfare benefits. So essentially, the, the, the argument in IPE is that the profit motive is what's guiding government intervention and determining what types of public policies which will or will not be supported. But this is just conjecture. So what we would like to do in this paper is to really push scholars to look at the individual incentives, the individual actors, and what's motivating these cutbacks in welfare spending in this era of globalization, and thus get at the real dynamics behind policy reform in a rapidly globalizing economy. So we ask in this paper whether or not the expansion of welfare spending in less developed countries really does affect their integration in today's dynamic and highly competitive global markets. So we want to put the race to the bottom logic to a really hard test and see whether or not the profit motive that's assumed in this research that's driving the race to the bottom actually in fact exists. So the implications um, of, of, of this analysis, the empirical results have very broad uh, implications. First, possibility is that welfare spending may not have any effect on international <coughs> prospects. And if this is the case, then the existing logic of the race to the bottom demands immediate reevaluation. Then we're left with the question is whether or not governments have gone too far in cutting back welfare expenditures when in fact this type of spending has no effect, real effect on international market prospects. And scholars are left with are left to figure out why this is the case, why governments are retrenching welfare expenditures when this, in fact, doesn't have any, uh, the economic effects that it's purported to have. The second possibility is that the size of the welfare well, that the size of the welfare budget does negatively impact the prospects of the international market expansion, and this indeed would confirm the, the intuition behind the race to the bottom logic, giving capitalists, export producers, owners of mobile capital, incentive to actually lobby the government for welfare reform. Um, but, if, but in fact, if this is indeed the case, if we do find this, if we do come up with this finding in this paper, then we would have to conclude that existing models suffer from potential endogeneity problems, which is an issue, and we would also still be forced to understand why governments are retrenching welfare benefits. And the, finally, the third possibility is welfare spending could actually encourage international market uh, integration by improving productivity, the stock of human capital. And if this is the case, and once again, the logic of the race to the bottom hypothesis would have to be fundamentally reexamined. So in our analysis, we use empirical data on globalization and welfare spending for 40 developing countries. We have a panel data set, and our results indeed confirm, actually, the first option. And we have the counterintuitive finding that welfare spending actually has no noticeable effects on international market prospects. So then we are left with the problem of trying to understand how 
why it is that existing literature has found these pretty consistent effects of uh, welfare retrenchment concomitant, concomitant with economic liberalization policies. So what we do next in this paper is come up with a plausible explanation for why this might be the case. So for the remainder of the presentation, what I'll do is I'll explain how this analysis fits within the broader literature. Uh, then we will present, I'll present hypotheses, five hypotheses in the literature designed to really get at the logic of the race to the bottom hypothesis to see whether or not, to see what is driving some of the micro foundations. And, and in the last part of the paper, uh, <clears throat> we'll present the statistical results and come up with a plausible, present a plausible explanation for why we get the findings that we do. Okay, the race to bottom hypothesis is pretty straightforward, right? Because of pressure to compete in export and financial markets, government welfare spending is one of the first budget items to be cut because of the upward pressure it has on labor costs, the, the, the lack of disciplining device it has on labor productivity, and because of maintaining such things as a welfare state requires, um, tends to result in higher tax rate, higher interest rates, all of which can have a negative effect on the macroeconomy negatively affecting uh, exports and, and making the economy less attractive to mobile, mobile capital. And this, according to the literature, leads to a race to the bottom because neighboring states that want to maintain competitive parity will respond in kind. Now, the, in the OECD countries, the race to the bottom has, according to the literature, is, is a non-issue. And this is for two reasons. Either scholars like Iverson and Cusack, Paul Pearson, finds that international economic variables don't really affect um, or are not really strong determinants of welfare, welfare state spending and welfare state policies, or if international market integration is, does have an impact on how much the government spends on welfare, Actually, what scholars have found is that the race of the opposite is occurring, that governments are actually expanding how much that they spend on the welfare state. And it's also important that in the OECD literature, they do look at micro-foundations. Scholars find that it's either leftist partisanship or encompassing labor institutions or institutional complementarities as discussed by the varieties of capitalism literature. There are these micro-foundations presented to explain why alongside international market integration, if it is a factor in affecting the size of the welfare state, that governments of OECD countries are actually increasing the size of the safety net and protecting their citizens from the risks and uncertainties of globalization. But in the developing countries, it is an issue because not only are scholars finding, consistently finding a negative relationship between trade openness and welfare spending, at the same time, the theoretical mechanisms linking global economic pressures with cutbacks are very vaguely specified. So what what, what, what we've done in the LDC literature is basically use the OECD countries as a foil to, to analyze and understand what is happening in terms of this relationship in developing countries. So we end up concluding that the reasons that welfare expenditures are being retrenched with globalization is because we don't have strong leftist parties. We don't have strong labor unions. So basically, we're describing a relationship, an ongoing relationship that is in effect by factors that do not exist 
in the developing countries. We're describing, we're explaining this re the occurrence of the, this relationship by what isn't as opposed to what is. So what we do instead is we conclude with conjecture when we find this negative relationship that essentially, consistent with the IP literature, that capital owners have gained bargaining power with globalization. And we say things like, as Kaufman and Segura say in their world politics piece, that secular shifts in the preferences and relative power of business se sectors exposed to increases in international competition curbs both social spending over the long term. Or Eric Wivels in his I.O. piece, his recent I.O. piece, um, interprets his findings as that under t tight macroeconomic conditions, tradables are likely to have a dominant interest in fiscal retrenchment at the expense of spending on human capital. So you see there's a pretty strong assumption in the literature that capitalists are, that welfare retrenchment is occurring because capitalists have gained bargaining power and they're lobbying governments to reduce welfare spending, essentially guided because of effects of their bottom, affects the bottom line. Now, to test this relationship, obviously, to test this conjecture, to this, hard, this, this fundamental assumption behind the race to the bottom arguments, ideally it would be perfect to have data on the preferences of capital or the expression of those preferences. This data does not exist. So, so in, in our analysis... What we, are going, what we attempt to do then is look at the observable implication of the race to the bottom hypothesis in terms of whether or not capital has gained uh, bargaining power. Do they actually have, by looking at what the effects of welfare spending on export competitors and the attraction of mobile capital, is we, we are going to infer the incentives of corporate interests. If, in fact, we find that it does have an economic effect, then we can conclude or we can draw some inferences that capitalists have a motivation to lobby governments for this types of reduction in welfare spending. So drawing from the literature, we come up with two sets of hypotheses. One set of hypothesis applies to the relationship or the potential relationship between export producers and welfare spending. And the second set of hypothesis applies to the relationship between uh, attracting mobile capital and, uh, and, uh, the, and the government welfare budgets. So in the first set of hypotheses, hypothesis one basically conf would confirm the race to the bottom logic. We call this the World Bank hypothesis. And this is basically the economic argument that if you increase welfare spending, this has negative economic costs and it's going to lead to higher trade costs, less labor, worsening labor productivity, principal agent problems, exports are going to reduce, and, and trade overall will decline. So hypothesis one confirms uh, the race to the bottom logic. But now... There's been a lot of recent work on that, that, that challenges the logic of, of the first hypothesis. The, the Peter Swenson, Isabel Maris discusses the whole idea that business interests aren't necessarily going to be incompatible with labor interests, uh, for example, in terms of maintaining higher welfare expenditures. And, and the whole logic of what we call the ILO perspective is that welfare spending, in fact, could lead 
to higher exports and trade because this type of spending or these types of welfare benefits can actually improve productivity by increasing firm loyalty, by increasing worker security, and it, it could increase social stability. So in fact, there's a possibility, there's a strong set of literature out there that proposes that increasing welfare spending actually might lead to higher exports and trade as opposed to what would be predicted by the race to the bottom. Now, the second set of hypotheses looks at the links between mobile capital and welfare spending. And scholars that look at the determinants of, uh, of capital flows identify what they call the push and the pull hypothesis, it's basically saying that capital flows are either determined by push factors, which are international level factors, or pull factors, which are domestic factors. So the pull hypothesis is basically that the, the mobile capital is de, capital flows are determined primarily by the domestic conditions of developing countries. They're political, either political or economic national factors. And the push hypothesis is more that international domestic conditions of developing countries will not matter, that international factors matter more, such as the business cycle in developed countries. When interest rates are low in developed countries, that they'll be more motivated to invest in uh, developing countries regardless of the domestic conditions. So there are two variants here of the pull hypothesis. The first one we call the welfare pull hypothesis, and this would confirm the race to the bottom logic. And this is that increasing welfare spending would lead to less capital inflows because of the same logic. It has negative macroeconomic effects, and this would confirm the pull hypothesis that domestic conditions of developing countries do matter in terms of determining the level of capital flows. But hypothesis four is another variant of the pull hypothesis. And this hypothesis operates by the same logic as the ILO hypothesis, but now it's just saying that because welfare spending actually promotes social stability and labor productivity, that it actually might encourage more capital inflows, which is exactly uh, the finding that Jeffrey Garrett found in the OECD countries in his, um, in, in his book, Partisan Politics. But there's a third possibility here, and this is the push hypothesis, the capital flows are not responding to domestic factors of developing countries, but external factors, such as, again, the business cycle in developed countries, and welfare spending here would not, therefore, be a factor. So to summarize, if we find empirical support for hypothesis or one or hypothesis three, this would confirm much of the conjecture of the race to the bottom hypothesis, the race to the bottom logic, that capitalists are, have an economic incentive to lobby the governments for welfare retrenchment. So here's our model. <clears throat> our three dependent variables are different, disaggregating globalization in three ways. We look at the level of exports, FDI, and portfolios as a percentage of GDP. And our right-hand side variables include the the gamut of, of, uh, of the, the relevant control variables. And importantly here, welfare spending is operationalized as the level of social security and welfare spending as a percentage of GDP. And we do robustness checks for um, as a percentage of total government spending as well. Yeah? No, just social security and welfare. And the reason we just look at social security and welfare is because we want to put the race to the bottom logic to a hard test. Because unlike health and education, which can have effect on, on, on taxes and, and, and increased costs that way, looking at Social Security and welfare, we feel is a harder test of the race to the bottom logic because it has a direct effect on labor costs. And we can see directly 
um, whether or not it's affecting exports and, um, and capital flows. So um, what do we expect? If the welfare variable, basically we're going to be looking at the World Bank hypothesis and the, world, and the welfare pull hypothesis to confirm the race to the bottom logic. And if the, if the coefficient on the welfare is negative and significant in, either of, in any of the models, then this would provide some evidence in support of this conjecture um, behind capital motivations. And looking at the results here, drawing your attention to the first row, we don't find any support for the race to the bottom logic. In our, in our analysis, welfare spending has no significant effect on the level of exports or portfolio investment. We do find some support in this particular model for the effects of welfare spending on FDI flows, it's, but it's positive and significant. There's two caveats here. One, it's positive and significant, which is a support of the ILO hypothesis, not the World Bank hypothesis that supports the race to the bottom logic. And secondly, when we held this model up to the different uh, robustness checks that I'll discuss in, in a moment, it did not. These findings did not did, did not hold up. So this particular finding in the FDI model is is very much subject to model specification. So from the time series cross-section model, we found that none of the spending variables have any effect. Um, other variables seem to matter more. Uh, exports, portfolio flows, and FDI are affected by economic growth and other economic variables and one political variable of democracy. Um, we found support for the international push hypothesis in terms of capital flows as opposed to the pull hypothesis. And Importantly, we did a whole battery of robustness checks because clearly here endogeneity is a potential problem since one of the motivating factors of the analysis is, you know, this outstanding literature that's found a, a negative relationship between globalization and welfare spending. So in order to make sure that our results in, in the previous table was not biased because of endogeneity, uh, we ran this with uh, vector autoregression and instrument and variable regression to see whether or not it was affecting our results, and the results did not change. So we are pretty confident in these results that welfare spending does not have a significant effect on these globalization variables. So now we are in a position, we move to the third and final part of our paper, we have these really counterintuitive results. We have the extant literature that shows us pretty convincingly, and we did our own tests on the side to confirm this was the case through our robustness checks, that trade has a negative effect. Uh, trade more than capital flows has a consistent negative effect on welfare spending. So it seems that indeed governments are retrenching their welfare spending in response to globalization in developing countries. But according to the race to bottom logic that they're doing this because that capitalists have an incentive to lobby their the governments, because it's having a negative effect on their bottom line, doesn't seem to be panning out by the results we have here. So in order to, to get some sense of these results, we look at, we draw from the neoclassical political economy literature and parts of the IPE literature to come up with a plausible explanation why this might be the case, and we invite future study and, and, and detailed case studies to confirm whether or not our suspicions are indeed confirmed. Here's our bottom line. We think this is the case, 
based on our analysis of the broader literature in IPE and neoclassical political economy, that what's going on is that governments and businesses are actually using globalization as an excuse for reforms that were long needed before globalization-type policies were ever adopted. And labor eventually folds in the war of attrition. So now, going back now and looking at the micro-foundations and looking at individual actor incentives, here's what we think might be going on. Let's start with the main actor here is the business incentives. Business, now here in our model, we're assuming, or in, in our interpretation, we're assuming that businesses have knowledge based on our findings. We're assuming that businesses know, or a large number of businesses know, that welfare spending or, or higher social security costs do not affect their bottom line. Because these kinds of firms, and, for, and we think this is a plausible assumption for three reasons. One, because businesses do engage in profitability analysis. They do have a sense of what is affecting their profitability, and, and wage costs is definitely part of that. Second, um, a lot of these export-oriented firms, or a great number of them, are part of the free trade zones and special economic zones in developing countries that are not subject to a lot of these labor market regulations. They're exempt from them. And third, in many developing countries, aside from select countries in Latin America most definitely, those who are receiving these types of welfare benefits are a very small percent of the larger labor force. So, so we start with a very important assumption that businesses are aware that at least in the immediate, in the present term, that the existing labor costs that they might be paying or they might not be paying for uh, such things as Social Security is not overall affecting their bottom line. So then why might they be motivated to support welfare reform? Well, we argue it's more of a political argument that business does have an incentive to uh, weaken labor's bargaining power in the workplace. Well, labor as a whole in developing countries is not strong. They don't have strong unions. Uh, generally speaking, they don't have encompassing unions in, 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 in centralized, coordinated labor movements. But there are pockets of labor groups that do, are very strong and do hold political clout in many developing countries. And the reason is goes back to the, the ISI period, import, substitutional, uh, import substitution period, when a lot of governments chose to buy cooperation of labor groups in key sectors using welfare-type benefits in exchange for labor peace and, labor peace and political support um, so, that, uh, so that they could get the political support of labor. And so what happens then in classical Sunnian style when this type of labor relationship gets established and labor benefits get distributed, distributional coalitions form to insist that this type of, type of state intervention continues. And for sure, we do see that even today, things like pension benefits and job securities are, are, are common types of labor benefits that are increasingly hard to retrench in developing countries. They continue to persist today way past the ISI period. So whether or not Social Security and welfare actually affects the bottom line of firms, we, we argue that capitalists do have an incentive to still lobby for reform because it's an advance towards loosening labor's privileged position in both the workplace in many developing countries 
as well as in the broader political arena so that they can lobby for other types of policies that might be in their favor, such as capital subsidies or tariff reductions. Our second actor is government. Now, why would government want to support labor reform when, again, a lot of these, they have had this historical relationship with, with particular labor groups that have, that have served as an important core um, source of political support? Well, recent studies have, in, have indicated that the implicit pension debt in low and lower middle income countries is actually very high in more than would be expected. And the reason is that most of the public pension schemes that were originally designed to curry favor with these select labor groups were never designed to be able to serve the current benefit levels that they, they're mandated to achieve at the, at the moment. So the eligibility criteria was extremely lax for a lot of labor groups, particularly military and civil servants. So, for example, um, the number of years that they had to contribute in, in order to receive benefits could be sometimes in many countries between five to ten years, and you could get really generous pension benefits for, uh, even after working for such a short period of time. And a lot of their benefits, they don't have to contribute anything, and they receive these really... Uh, receive very generous welfare benefits. So the consequences are becoming increasingly wide, are known, that there's a mil misallocation of public resources, and it's resulting in a very unequal distribution of income. So governments eventually will favor reform since it becomes increasingly apparent that it's going to be harder to re earn rents from this type of welfare benefits. But it's important here that this type of reform has been advocated and lobbied for in many, country, in many developing countries long before globalization began. But governments can conveniently use the excuse now of globalization to push that reform through. And we've seen it happen in many cases such as, admittedly it's, it's correlated with crisis, uh, the economic crisis that often follows these globalization policies, but Cardoso, for example, in Brazil was able to push reform through for the first time after the financial crisis hit, and they had been uh, lobbying for reform decades after. And the same thing happened in Korea after the Asian financial crisis. And finally, what is labor's incentive to finally agree to reform? And here we draw on Alicina and Dresden's 1991 American Economic Review article, which they have a really interesting analysis, what they call the war of attrition. And in their model, fiscal stabilization is a public good. And essentially, there are two players, and each is waiting to see who is eventually going to bear the cost of, the cost of, of stabilization. And ultimately, what Alicina and Drazen argue is when one group starts to lose credibility, that they will find that the long-term cost of waiting increases. And we argue that in the case of welfare reform, it's labor who's going to lose credibility uh, with globalization. And why? It's because media and policymakers are underscoring this link between improving competitiveness and labor reform. And we see this. The examples are abound of different types of arguments that public policymakers often make in terms of the need to reform labor. They need to cut back welfare benefits in order to improve competitiveness. And here are just a few. Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister, I'll just draw your attention to the italicized part. Singapore, of course, has a central provident fund, and that's their main safety net. And the Deputy Trade Minister argues these measures in, in terms of 
uh, advocating for reform, argues these measures will make our labor market more flexible and contribute to our economy's overall resilience and competitiveness. India's former Prime Minister Atul Vajpayee, same things, arguing that we need to reform the labor laws, adding that such reorientation towards making competitiveness is impossible without the ability to restructure labor within individual businesses. I urge all of you to view the proposed amendments to the labor laws in the broader perspective of how we can make our economy grow faster. And similarly, Indian, Indonesia's trade minister argues Indian, in, Indonesian industry is under intense competitive pressure and they really feel this, uh, the need to keep labor costs to a minimum in order to compete globally. So what are the implications? To summarize, in our analysis, we've shown that the causality between globalization and welfare is unidirectional. International market expansion is correlated with welfare retrenchment, but our analysis shows that this policy change is not improving the international economic standing of developing countries. The conventional race to the bottom wisdom, then, that international-oriented business is uniformly demanding that government lower spending because it affects export competitiveness and their incentive to invest does not seem to hold true in our analysis. So then this begs the question, have governments gone too far? We, our explanation of the statistical results is that the answer is yes, but they're doing so with political purpose. That they're using globalization as an excuse for domestic reform and making the first, taking the first steps to, to, to break away from the political stronghold that privileged labor groups have had on governments in a lot of developing countries. And what this means for the broader literature is perhaps is, is a difference between means and ends, right? In the welfare literature, in the IP literature, welfare reform seems to be the end in and of itself. And a lot of the IP literature, Goodman and Polly, uh, Cohen and Milner discuss about the triumph of capital, that capital has indeed arrived. It's increased their bargaining power over labor. Danny Roderick talks about the fact that labor is getting taxed, capital gets to go elsewhere, so labor is the loser. But we're arguing, in fact, it's not the ends that are important here. What's going on is that welfare reform is actually a means to an end. It's a means by which governments are possibly using welfare reform to break the stranglehold of privileged labor groups that in the end are perpetuating regressive redistribution policies. So I can end here on an optimistic note that it's possible then if further case studies and more data collection confirm that our explanation of the statistical results. It's possible then that we might be seeing a more optimistic picture in the, the near future, hopefully in developing countries, that the race to the bottom where there's cutbacks in welfare expenditures could actually be benefiting the poor. Um, first, I'd like to say that I enjoyed reading, reading the paper very much um, on two particular um, issues. First, um, the paper rightly focuses on the causal mechanisms of race to the bottom arguments as they asserted in the literature, and this effort is particularly important 
because trends in welfare spending, level of global integration, and the preeminence of capital during this period in developing countries supports the RTB race to the bottom argument on the face of it. Yet little has been done in terms of testing the actual causal mechanisms. And secondly, your treatment of endogeneity um, in this process is really um, intriguing to me because I used to work on it a little bit at some point. Um, okay, um, my comments. First one is um, about the nature of welfare spending in um, less developed countries. Um, you rightly point out that welfare spending is by and large catered to the middle class um, in these countries. Is there data out there, or maybe of your own, that provides descriptive evidence, descriptive and statistical evidence about the nature of welfare spending in these countries? The question is, I think, important for a number of reasons. First one, it is very closely connected to your alternative explanation that you provide at the end of the paper. The nature of the labor force who benefits from the welfare schemes in those countries. What is the percentage of white-collar workers, for example, among, among the welfare benefit recipients? Um, that is, I try to make a distinction between um, export-oriented versus uh, exclusively domestic-oriented labor force who is on welfare schemes. Uh, my sense is that most of the welfare recipients are urban workers whose ties with globalization rest, rests on their being consumers in the market only rather than being part of the export-oriented uh, sectors. So in this regard, I think your response to this question is critical in evaluating your claim on weakening the political strength of distributional coalitions. Secondly, um, relatedly, uh, most of the employment in these countries is in the informal sector instead of the formal sector. That is what we observe in OECD countries. Hence, the investors do not have the burden of social security or other employee benefits to begin with. In this regard, race to the bottom argument in your paper is taken minimally to focus on welfare spending. Um, would, wouldn't it be reasonable to focus on other possible areas where exporters or foreign investors would demand other types of deregulation from the government to remain competitive, such as tax breaks or other forms of incentives easing the financial and bureaucratic hurdles of, for export-oriented investments. I think this is particularly um, important for the smaller economies among the uh, developing countries. Uh, the next comment is, uh, one of the assumptions you make is on the independence of firms and business representatives in less developed countries when you discuss your alternative explanation of the results. In a great majority of these countries, domestic business is very much a client of the state. Strong ties exist between the state and the private business sector if there's a sizable one. In some ways, this, this structure resembles the paternal state argument where even the mere existence of private business depends on its relationship with the state in terms of credit allocation, market access, and other types of rents. When that is the case, how independent would you think that the business sector can act in these countries? And this is, again, related to your alternative explanation. Um, Reading um, Lena Mosley and others in the field, we know that international investors, both FDI and portfolio, look at various factors for investment in a developing country, among which we can include fiscal policy in general, general economic outlook, and political outlook. 
My question is whether you have included these variables in your models that you have not reported and the results you have, and of course the result you have obtained if um, you tested for those. Um, I think the political outlook of a country is especially as distinct from regime type is really important for um, international investors. And from the welfare spending variable in your model, it seems that leaving political outlook variable um, out from the model might potentially pose a problem. The reason is that political outlook variable might be correlated with part of the welfare spending, um, such as um, unemployment spending, for example. Political outlook in um, You know, political stability within the country, that, that is as distinct from, you know, uh, from the variable included in the model that is authoritarian versus democracy. And the final comment I have is on the empirical section. I'm curious to see whether including an interaction term of welfare spending and percentage of skilled working population would make a difference. Um, and here's what I think. Developing countries vary a great deal among themselves in terms of the quality of quality of labor force and average labor costs. We know that some developing countries receive an important amount of international capital annually, even though the labor cost is ri rising in many ways. And investors may be choosing between two equilibrium, high-skilled workforce and high cost versus low-skilled workforce and low cost. In other words, the effect of welfare spending on exports or FDI may depend on the quality of the labor force. force. In high-skilled countries, welfare spending may qualitatively and quantitatively, quantitatively have a different relationship to exports and foreign investment than in low-skilled countries. So adding, a, adding an interaction term between welfare and um, skilled labor force percentage might address this, maybe. Um, so I would like to know your thoughts on this. Thank you. Those are all very helpful and excellent comments. <clears throat> Sarah, do you have a preference? Would you, shall I take as I wish? Um, uh, well, I'll respond briefly. I missed your name. Kadir? Okay. So Kadir's first question was, Descriptive, descriptive evidence on the nature of welfare spending. There does seem to be this, I mean, obviously our, our explanation, our analysis rests on this, the, the, the idea that welfare spending in developing countries is regressive, that it mostly benefits the middle class in these countries. There's empirical evidence on that. I've done a piece, and Evelyn Huber has also done a piece that looks at the relationship between welfare spending and income inequality and shows that, in fact, the coefficient of welfare spending is negative. I always get that confused. That's right. No. <laughs> a negative, meaning that it's regressive, that it actually worsens income inequality. Now, it would be wonderful if we could look at what percentage are actually getting, uh, <clears throat> actually getting, what percentage of white-collar workers are actually getting welfare benefits, as you suggest. I don't have cross-national data that's comparable on that, but I have looked at it on, at, uh, on a different level, like case studies, and um, usually the cases that I've looked at, uh, which is India, Brazil, and Korea, in India it was uh, less than 10%, 6% of the workforce. In Brazil, Sarah, help me out. I think it was, I saw a different estimate, I think 60%. Receiving? Receiving. Is it 12%? Okay, okay. And... Um, 
Oh, pain. What, would, what was the pain? That's what I thought. That's 55 to 60%. And Korea, well, they've just, their program is still very new, so we're seeing what's going to happen with them. So, so I can say with confidence that it, it is regressive, but exactly looking at the dynamics behind them, that would be a, a, a valuable thing to do. And we'd love to get data on that in a larger sample. Um, looking at the types of welfare spending, other types of wealth spending that capital might want to lobby for. Yeah, I, I think that that's a valuable thing to do. And we have tested it in terms of education and health spending. Um, and we would expect that it actually would help improve exports and uh, attract more capital. But actually, we found that education and health, and we're still looking at this, but surprisingly, we found that education and health didn't have an effect on these types of international market variables either. And we think that's because most of the, we have aggregate level variables. Education spending actually is mostly, we don't have it disaggregated, and a lot of this in developing countries is going towards tertiary education. So maybe there's something funky going on there. And also health spending, too, tends to be regressive. Um, and so we're, we're looking at that relationship. But we're starting off, and we purposely chose Social Security and welfare because to engage with the, other, with the broader literature, the literature that actually has found um, a negative relationship between trade and Social Security spending. Um, um, your, your suggestion about looking at the interaction is a very interesting one and one we haven't thought of, so we'll definitely look at that more closely. Marcus? Don't you have to have like age dependency or something 
But our dependent variables are, is export, so. Right, but I guess it depends on how you think about it. I worry that the, the level of welfare spending might be higher simply because we have a, an older dependent population, a more dependent population. Mm -hmm. uh, and the political costs of reducing that are not equal across countries. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, so if it's an uh, it's a, So the age could be age. So welfare, right? So welfare actually could be serving as a proxy, a, dem a demographic proxy, as opposed to. And, and let's face it, this is mostly pension spending, unemployment spending, failed spending. Right. Um, the real exchange rate—we're talking about exports. It's actually difficult to not think about that because that will both increase the amount of exports you get and, in many comparisons, decrease your magnitude of GDP in a variable model. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, total spending, because mm. in theory. Right. It has to be the case that they're not paying for it by cutting other parts of the budget and therefore not raising taxes. So if they got education spending, fund pension spending, it doesn't they don't care. Right. They have to pay to increase costs. So you need to know what the total tax burden is at the same time. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All great suggestions. Um, the first point was endogenous growth. Endogenous growth. Yeah, I mean, Anytime you have that ratio on the left-hand side, it does make me nervous for exactly those reasons. I don't know how to get around that. Um, GDP on the right-hand side controls for it a little bit, but doesn't really get at the issue that you're talking about. I mean, it could be a wash. I mean, we do look at exports with respect to total global exports, right? But that, so. Per capita exports. Dollar, dollar per capita. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good thought. Well, I mean, we look at exports relative to total global exports, and didn't find any results. I know. Um, and yeah, so so I mean, I like your idea of putting real exchange rates. Um, I, in, in terms of welfare spending, having that negative, being affected by the demographics, I mean, that's an interesting prospect that I didn't think about. I'm going to have to figure out how to, to detrend that. Right? But still, I mean, the way that the, the pension system works, right, is that governments are spending current, their current, trend, current revenues for, so it would, it's, I'm, I'm not sure if the age factor would make such a difference in that sense. It might or it might not, right? It all depends on whether it's the tax rate that matters or whether it's the cost of changing the tax rate and expense that matters. Because you're just getting the total amount spent because you don't know how many old people. Uh, so it, the same cut in welfare spending will have a differential living standard impact if there are different age profiles. They may not. Yeah. These are all double. Yeah. Right, and then you're and, and you're right about the within country between country differences. So we should do a random effects model too to see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, um, Sarah, and then Alex. Okay. Because you say that you're putting the race to the bottom itself to a hard test. Mm -hmm. But isn't that more about what's happening to the governments 
then about the implication of governments for competitiveness. In particular, because a lot of the, the responses in the developing world haven't come in and observed in the overall levels. We don't see the, the employers having a problem with spending, per se, as much as that cost on the labor, the payroll charges. Mm -hmm. So in the area of pensions, they've been in, indeed lobbying for reform, but reform that would lower their payroll charges. Right. And they've done so. Right. So I wondered if you yeah. could get a little bit closer to it and say, yeah. what, you know, tell us why they would care about overall spending instead of what's the right. effect of how, rather than how governments pay for that spending. Because right. a lot of them have been saying, I'm going to keep spending the same, but shift it from employers to consumption that taxes going up in a lot of countries, cutting employer payroll contributions, putting more of the emphasis on labor. Um, this would be doing, implied doing a study more closely to doing uh, science work, where he found the shift in the burden of taxation mm -hmm. from labor to capital, which I think would be a more interesting test yeah. of whether governments are responding to that mm -hmm. power. Because so you're going to get the bargaining power yeah. of Yeah. A right. Right. That that is definitely a challenge that we've been grappling with in this paper because we are looking at total welfare spending, but you're right, totally the explanation our our explanation assumes that that um, that capitalists care about Uh, their payroll costs is kind of the, the story that we're telling. Well, I, I, we're making a bold assumption here, and and I think we need to think harder of how if we're convinced of that assumption. Uh, we are assuming here that high welfare spending, because of you know the, the three contributors to the welfare system, right? It's the government, the employer, and the employee. So we are making a bold assumption here that if welfare spending is high, we're assuming that um, both employers and governments are contributing to the pension system. And that's not necessarily the case in all countries, I know. But I think generally that is the case. Um, and I, I think we need to think harder how we can systematically show that when government's welfare spending is high, that is correlated with high contributions by employers. Um, but I can, there are exceptions, like Korea, for example. The employer don't contribute anything. The employee, and, and I know that there are exceptions. So I think... I'm glad you brought that up. So I think that we really need to focus on looking at systematically if our assumption is correct. If in most countries, um, both the government and the employers are contributing in like to some extent to the pension system. We could just look at the ratio of the contributions, the burden of the employee-employer, or you can look at the importance of that tax revenue across these countries and the share of government tax. As far as looking at the, the ratio, does, does the SSA have that? Yeah, the ILO has that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Over time, that should shift, right? Right. I'm not sure it's safe to take those as constant. Yeah. If they're shifting in the OECD, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question is how much they're shifting. It's shifting marginally, but if it's shifting drastically. Well, in Argentina, they cut them in half. Did they really? And I would assume that the employers are taking up more in no, Argentina. No. The, the government. They cut the employer in half. Okay. Because okay. They weren't competitive. They had an overvalued exchange rate. The social security system was costly, so they lobbied the government to reform. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
It's kind of preempt. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's actually the opposite relationship between taxation of big firms and welfare spending. Um, that's obviously over speculation. Um, but a couple, couple other uh, questions. One is like, I guess I never quite understood why portfolio investment was included alongside the others. I didn't, I didn't quite see the connection um, and why foreigners engaged in portfolio investment would be nearly as I, the taxes question, we started off trying to look at tax data. I, to my knowledge, there, that data does not exist in, in, in an effort to get exactly the taxes related, the payroll taxes that they're paying. I mean, that would also get at Sarah's concern. Um, to my knowledge, so that's why we have to do this kind of backwards way, back alley way of looking at this question. Lower welfare spending could actually increase capital flow. We struggle with this issue as well. And the one way, and it's not the best, the way we, the, our first cut at it is to lag the, the welfare variables to see. And, and, and thinking that there's some sort of learning effect going on here, I'm not sure that we've completely, I don't think we've completely dismissed that possibility. But as far as looking at, you know, several different, different lags, um, I mean, I see it more as, as, as the, the whole neoliberal logic. I mean, the same thing. Governments don't really know. I mean, we can argue that businesses have engaged in profitability analysis and they have some knowledge of whether or not, you know, they're, what they're putting into welfare actually affects their bottom line. But governments really don't know if that's correct, that, you know, making labor markets more flexible or, I mean, why is it that governments are so convinced you know, at least in, in, in their public face, that these kinds of reforms are actually going to improve their competitiveness. And so I think that it's, it's the idea. I think it's, 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 they're seizing upon the explanation that benefits them most politically. And if for the reasons that, that we see going on, is because they have been trying to push these reforms for political reasons. And the other reason is for democracy, you know, that democracy has been expanding in, in developing countries. So there's more and more reasons that they would want to shake their their relationship or at least distance themselves a little bit and give them give governments more room to move in terms of the public budget and in terms of uh, their resource, the distribution of their resources. Um, 
Portfolio floors are included because it's that whole idea is that large welfare spending leads to large public deficits. And that obviously has negative macroeconomic implications. So would mobile capital owners be attracted to countries with large bloated deficits? Yes, yes. Measure the deficit in the welfare deficit. See if that the the pension deficit. You mean? No, what's the government can pay for it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's possible that the government can that it's not actually having these negative macroeconomic effects. True, but the race to the bottom logic assumes that it does, and that's why then why cut them back in the first place? I mean, why, why are governments saying that they're cutting it back in the first place? What is the motivation driving that? And it's the idea, again, I think, that whether or not it actually does, whether or not they can actually pay for it, that this looks good to investors. I mean, that's the logic. Yes. Too high level of aggregation. Yeah. Well, then why why retrench welfare benefits then in the first place? If it's so small and government can can afford it, then why? But but exactly. But the motivation behind the study is these is is these empirical analyses that have found this robust relationship between that openness does have an effect. So it's, there might be some other reasons related to openness. Okay. It seems to me it would be okay to be stronger if you could disaggregate by sector. Yeah. Yeah. And focus on sectors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because, it, I mean, it, it, we can't in any way assume that cutting back welfare. High labor costs is not affecting it, – it's got to be affecting some businesses. And it might be those particular businesses that are in cahoots with the government and are, are able to. I mean, those are, those are aspects of the relationship that, that we unfortunately can't test. And, you know, case studies would be the best way to look at that. But systematically it shows that, that that's not the case, that generally um, – yeah, your point about imports is, is very important and well taken. We look at – and from two dimensions in, in the paper, we also test imports and, again, find that um, welfare spending doesn't have an effect. But even more interestingly, we look at economic growth. And at least con contemporaneously, 
they don't have, welfare spending didn't have an effect on that economic growth either because maybe domestic firms are using that for an excuse or governments feel that it's important for economic growth and for political concerns that way, but we didn't find a relationship between welfare spending and economic growth either. <laughs> no, I mean, it could be. It could be. And, and I think that's interesting, again, because, you know, why is it that people are so convinced that cutbacks in these particular types of um, spending categories is going to improve competitiveness? You hear that over and over again. And we definitely know, using the varieties of capitalism language, that the liberal market economies, that's definitely the case. But those types of economies, in reality, are so few. We have more of the you know, the coordinated market or the social democratic economies where you don't have to cut, make these drastic changes in welfare benefits that will affect the bottom line. Um, so there's definitely, an, there's, it definitely has ideological persuasion for whatever reasons. It's, we'll let other people figure that out, why it has such ideological persuasion. It might be the case, but I think in developing countries, again, the system of welfare benefits, it's so different. Again, you know, it's, it's not a large percent of workers that they have to support in this way. Most of these export-oriented firms are paying nothing, if any, very little, if anything, on this type of, of expenditures, uh, welfare expenditures. And, and why spend resources lobbying the government for a type of reform that you don't have convincing evidence is affecting your bottom line? Why not invest more, as our regression results show, in improving the skilled workforce, improving technology, improving the other factors that we know cause improvements in the bottom line? But that's exactly, I mean, but we hear the case that they have been trying to, to reform these welfare and they haven't been able to do it because there's other actors involved and labor is strong. So how are we going to break the back? Oh, certain labor groups are strong. So what is a good way to break the backs of labor? And, you know, usually it happens in terms, in financial crises linked to globalization. And then they can use that opportunity to do that because, I mean, it's just been the case that they haven't been able to convince the governments that, convince the governments or convince labor that they need to fold in the war of attrition. And with financial crisis and linked to globalization, they get the fodder to do so. Yeah. Um, you mentioned during your talk that it's usually after crises that governments are able to make 
Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely a plausible alternative explanation. Irfan, you want to speak to that? Because I know you looked at this question in close detail, not just in this paper, but other papers. Right. I mean, you know, we did look at the government's climate programs on exports FDI. I mean, if I remember correctly, I think they may positively affect exports, which is like the effect of how the FAD tends to be reduced. Barriers to trade and stuff, kind of thing. Uh, I don't think they had any effect on FDI. Uh, the portfolio stuff has always been the same in our site, uh, so you know, just take out the good price and take it. Um, I don't think, you know, the stuff I've done with Joel, I mean, we do show that uh, governments do use it as an opportunity to cut welfare spending, whether uh, wages and salaries and that kind of thing. So, but it doesn't affect this relationship, and it doesn't bear on whether or not welfare itself has. Yeah, um, they are. So it's mm-hmm. not captured. So there could yeah. be that again, that what you're really getting at is yeah. happening, but it's not so much being captured. I can't get anything by Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's right. I mean, again, I'm operating on the assumption that usually countries that have really rigid labor markets have high Social Security expenditures um, in developing countries. I mean, that's 
because as far as I know, I didn't know Vicky has time series data on on labor market reforms. I. Yeah. In the OECD so country, but that's an OECD country. Oh, no, really? Okay, see. I mean, the data that I've seen is World Bank data, and it's, it's kind of scary on the labor market reform. It's like, what is labor market reform? I, I haven't seen good data on it. Um, definitely not time series data, but but I guess, yeah, I saw that. But again, it's not time series. I'm pretty sure. Or if it, if it is, it's a very small panel. But it still wouldn't hurt to do a, to do a check, I mean, even if it is, you know, a certain. And I think it's, no, it is global, right? It is global. But what's interesting, though, is when I put those different data sets side by side, and, and, I, and I had to do this for the book project, they don't, they don't pan out. They contradict each other. But what's that? Your welfare data? No, 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 no. The different data that exists on labor market reform. You know, some countries will have India's very protective and very rigid labor markets, and then that, this, and the other data set from the World Bank as well will totally contradict that and say it's one of the most liberalized labor markets. So what they include in labor market reform gets really nebulous, but but I think it's definitely worth something we should do as a, as a second check, even if it's not time series. Yeah, I do kind of assume that we do kind of assume that they are they're all coalescing, and um, I, I think that it is kind of happening parallel to each other. I mean, I'll have to think about that more. It's interesting. I, I haven't really thought about you know exactly. The, I thought about it in terms of a step-by-step -step process, but we do know that governments have been pushing, or at least there have been reform advocates. Um, I, I guess. Yeah, there have been there have been reform advocates in a lot of these countries that have been lobbying reform for a long period of time, 
right? And then you have economic liberalization that occurs, and ultimately you have fiscal crisis. So you have governments that have been experiencing this pressure, and, prob- and by businesses as well. I'm going to say probably because I don't have data to confirm that. So I guess it's a confluence of events that occurs differently in different countries, but I would argue, and it usually occurs after there's a financial crisis, that these reform advocates get the political momentum to push through the reforms that they want to push through, and they get the support from government, they get labor to fold because of the war of attrition, and they have business support. And so so governments can curry favor with you know, certain business representatives or business interests at that time. So I would think that it's a separate group, separate interest group, um, that are lobbying these reform, whoever they might be, NGOs, civil society advocates, and that they get heard by the government, and the government is bolstered by the support of business, and labor ultimately uh, acquiesces to the reform because you know, of the war of attrition that I discussed. In terms of maintaining their benefits, I think they they resist reform. I mean, how do they continue to resist reform? They lo- protest, lobby against it, um, re- withhold political support. Because you went back to ISI for that right. particular reason, saying uh, talking about rent seeking right. You mean in addition to political support that they might give and, and, right, and right. So economic the handouts that they right, might give? Would this be the, um, what do they call it, the, um, once it's in place, the bargain can burn obsolescence or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they've created a welfare state. Why should labor support them? So um, going, I'm just trying to understand the logic of that last part with the ISI creation. How does labor have some power? So the question is, how, why is labor? I'm, I'm not understanding. <laughs> no, so the question is, so I think it's a, it's an important question. The question is, what is labor doing to, con, what is labor's power once those welfare benefits have been created? Government does. Right. 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 So what is that bargaining power? What is the in this model the, the role that social security or social welfare systems play? In terms of, uh, I'm thinking about it in terms of the demand on resources. Is that? I mean, that, I'm thinking about it in terms of demand on resources, demand on. Um, Employment, that's a big thing, right? It's not just the, the welfare benefits themselves. I mean, really, we're looking at this as a proxy, right? If you have large welfare spending, we're assuming that, you know, employment in these sectors, well, particularly health and education, which we don't look at, but, you know, there's employment in these sectors, too, that, that government kind of doles out these types of um, privileged employment positions within, you know, the Social Security Administration sector that also serves as benefits. Is that kind of... What you're getting at? So there's Marcus. 
So, so if welfare spending is decreasing, it could be because of informalization that's going on. And our dependent and exports will rise because of the increasing forward sector. Yeah. And they don't have to pay the high welfare costs. Payroll costs. Well, you don't, but by, by your story, because there's greater informalization. Right. So then shouldn't we find a positive, shouldn't we have found a statistically significant relationship if that's the case? We haven't modeled the size of the informal sector. Some people look at welfare spending as a measure of formalization. Yeah. So if welfare spending, if inform, so welfare spending should be decreasing. So we still should see us if, if we accept that odd way of measuring the <laughs> informal sector, then we should still see a statistically significant relationship. Should be positive, as opposed to no, yeah, welfare spending goes down. Export, it should be negative. Right, but there could be other. You had a question.
So, so this would be kind of added to Marcus's point why we might find a wash. Yeah, or maybe it's, I guess, in the developing countries, I assume most of what's going on here is retrenchment, so they don't care that there isn't anything going on. Who's they? It's government, so it's reducing, and I I don't know, I'm just making an assumption that most of what's going on is reduction in welfare. Right. They don't want it to get too high because then that might really affect their tax tax rates. So that could be an alternative explanation. I don't know how we test that. But that's Everyone is invited to a reception and a reception. Thank you.